He stated that he had been appointed to suggest a president for Howard College. So there was a lot of industry investment when I grew up, a lot of progressiveness. However, it was still a typical small southern town. To be perfectly honest with you, um, I didn't know what Alabama was until I stepped foot in Alabama. I was not greeted by hecklers. I was greeted by Martha and Fox. As we move forward, it's so important that you're doing things like this because this is what's rebuilding. Oral history is it, it's, it's his story, it's her story, it's our stories. And ironically, when you tell a story, what you find out the basis of the foundation is, we have so many more similarities than we do differences. And when we realize that, then the next generation comes together even more in the next generation. Welcome back to Sam.Wave. We're your hosts, Michelle Little and Claire Davis. And we come to you today with a brief glimpse of the history of Eastlake, Alabama. Two years ago, Story met with Amber Tolbert, owner of East 59 Vintage and Cafe. Amber herself is a Sanford alumna, and her decision to open a cafe and vintage shop in the heart of Eastlake came directly from a passion to involve herself more in the community. With her invaluable help, Story worked with Cornerstone Schools of Alabama to host a pop-up interview day in the shop. As regulars and locals came by for their customary caffeine fix, two classes of Cornerstone High School students invited them to record an oral history interview about their lives in Eastlake. With their help, we collected 11 interviews in seven hours, compiling a vivid and vibrant version of the community's past, part of which we're sharing with you today. Officially incorporated in 1910, Eastlake is a Birmingham community roughly 12 miles from Sanford's campus in Homewood. In 1886, Eastlake experienced a boom in population when the Eastlake Land Company developed housing for laborers and workmen. The town was also marketed as a resort location. The addition of a railroad and streetcar line in 1887 popularized the area as well. Also in 1887, our university, Sanford, which at that time was named Howard College, relocated to Eastlake, Alabama from Marion. We stayed in Eastlake for 70 years, which is longer than we've been on any other campus. Earl II, Sanford alumnus and Eastlake resident, recounts the day he came to Eastlake and found his way to campus. I came here to go to Howard College in 1948. And... Uh, Anyway, I uh, I remember I I, I I had been through here once before, but I had never seen Birmingham. And I came in on the bus. I came two three weeks before school started. Uh, I had a friend that was pastor of the Ninth Avenue Baptist Church right over at the airport from here, and he was an older friend. In fact, his father was my pastor in my my rural church and and that church was a quarter time church it just had preaching once a month so you know I, I respected Brother Cozart and his son was a pastor over it. Uh, he was a student at Howard and the pastor over at Ninth Avenue Baptist Church so I came here to go to college and 
I came in on the bus, uh, and I remember very distinctly when I got off the bus on 6th Avenue North, uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to 9th Avenue North, so I, I can walk up three, three blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and I started walking and asking, I realized that, hey, I gotta get, I gotta go another way. <laughs> so I came back and caught uh, a streetcar. They had streetcars then running up through here. Uh, one that came right up in front of Howard College and made the turn up the way and came back down First Avenue. So that's uh, how I discovered this East Lake area. His adventures finding his way around East Lake weren't over, however, and he still had a few surprises left to discover upon arrival. Well, uh, life in East Lake, uh, I, uh, when I came here, in fact, I didn't know that I had to make a reservation for housing. I thought when they accepted me as a student, they accepted me housing and all, but they didn't have, uh, we didn't have many, we didn't, we, we had very little housing for male students at Howard College. There were about four old uh, dormitories, by dormitories they were uh, barracks building that during the war uh, they had trained some uh, military people here and they built four of these buildings and that's where we lived. In those, in those four buildings. Uh, but I didn't know you had to make a reservation for that. So uh, uh, I, I went up uh, and found we found a room just off the campus uh, up on 8th Avenue, 80th, about 80th Street, I believe. And uh, I met my friend Charles Whitson there. He, he had just rented a room, and I, I rented a room that was right beside his. There was only two rooms, this house that these people lived in. Uh, they had two rooms that they rent out. So that's how, uh, and you know, it was a walking distance. None of us had a car uh, in those days. So we, we walked. We walked. While Earl II's first experience with Eastlake was as a college student, most people who participated in the project grew up in the area and remembered it as a small suburban community, complete with a lake and a park for entertainment. Nancy Scarpula filled us in on what her family would do for fun when she was younger. Eastlake Park, which y'all know it used to be an amusement park and used to have the big roller coaster. Well, by the 70s, in 80s, it had become just what it is. And for the longest, there was cruising. And people would just cruise around the park. You'd get out and walk. Um, I remember being there one morning with my mom, who's also passed away now. And we had this poodle. And my sister was with us. And we were walking around the park. And the poodle, for no reason, which poodles are a little neurotic anyway, but yeah. for no reason, this poodle just takes off and just jumps in the lake. My sister goes right after her and just jumps right in, and my mom's freaking out, screaming, Snakes! Snakes! There's snakes in there! Of course, you know, the chances of a snake really wanting to attack a poodle and a, and a human are pretty slim. But that was just kind of the fun. And then, um, was just to, to play that they had all kinds of different community events. Sometimes they would have a fishing tournament or, or fishing things. Um, so that was one place where we spent a lot of time. 
The other was the churches around here, especially ours. We would have um, a haunted house. Oh, yeah, and that right. You don't hear of a lot of churches having haunted houses, right? But mm-hmm. but our church, um, it wasn't a big church, but it would have a haunted house, and um, we would participate in that. However, all good things must come to an end, and the lake was drained to make space for more housing, which made for some interesting discoveries. I can remember when they they drained it, or they attempted to drain it one time, and that was when they were trying to rebuild it. And um, it was just eerie. You would go by and it was just eerie because they were still finding things left over from the amusement park. That used to be there from the different pieces from the roller coaster they were finding and they were finding all kinds of stuff at the bottom of the lake. While stories about the park and streetcars cropped up often, memories of segregation were also common across all of our interviews from that day. Many of our interviewees grew up during the civil rights era. Mrs. Scarpula shares one story. When I was growing up, segregation had just Really, it, it's they at that time they had started busing um, African Americans into white schools, and there was this all of this uproar. East Lake was changing, and you went from the generation that raised me, which was middle American white prejudiced is a fair term to use, racist, mm-hmm. because they were very they were close community now. My mom was different in that she, her best friend was African American. Mm-hmm. And even though she grew up with that, in, in that system, when your best friend is, quote, the other side, then you tend to get real protective. And so my mom, and I really credit her for this, my mom introduced us, particularly me, because I was the youngest, to the changing face of our community. Mm-hmm. And that was the best gift she ever gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example. I found papers from our church from when it was established back in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And on there, it has a specific clause in, in the founding things that says, no, and this is how it's worded, because this is how they worded things, no Negroes allowed. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it was a white church. Mm-hmm. And I can remember one time a black gentleman walking in, and this was when I was a little girl, so this would have been the early 70s. I can remember a black gentleman walking in who needed help yeah. because something had, 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 his car had broken down or something. And I remember several of the men jumping up and running to stop him at the church door. Oh, really? That was that was who they were then. That was who they were. This was again the early seventies, mid seventies. What I what I love about that, and and this is just so apropos to this, is that's now a black church, a primarily African American wow. church. They sold it years ago. Even though she moved into Eastlake in the late 1970s as an adult, Eunice Rogers' perspective as a black woman growing up in Bessemer, another nearby community, also brought a valuable personal history to the project. Here, she describes her childhood in Bessemer. When I was born, I was born in the midst of segregation, and it was quite a trying experience. There were times when I would want to go places that I could not go, for instance, the Fair Park, At that time, 
black people could not go. If you went to the movies, you had to sit in the balcony. I remember watching King Kong when it first came out, but I had to watch it in the balcony. Also, the Ten Commandments, different movies. It was just a, it was a segregated lifestyle, but it was something you just kind of accepted and went along with. There was the, the white and the colored fountains. There were places on the bus. So it was a little different, but everybody was in their own world, and you kind of just made yourself happy, and you really didn't. When I was so young, I didn't get involved in it as much as a young child. When Mrs. Rogers entered high school, she was offered the chance to break some of the barriers she experienced as a child. She faced opposition with determination. I went to, I started out going to school at J.S. Abrams in the traditional black schools. Then when I became a sophomore, I was one of the first, among the first to integrate the uh, high school in Bessemer. And it was quite a different experience because people did not know what to expect. But I went in with a determination. I became the first black student to make the National Honor Society. Uh, I won a scholarship to Vanderbilt for my college education. And I just did a lot of firsts, but it was really kind of, it was a mixed blessing in that we actually had to be escorted to school, escorted home. I couldn't just get up and walk to school. I couldn't just take the bus for safety reasons. But after I went to a school and, and I went to chemistry class and the person that was assigned to be my lab partner refused to be my lab partner because of my race. And so I got another one. And ironically, about 15, 10 years ago, I ran into that same person who's now an attorney and they were passing out their cards. I said, didn't you go to best? I said, yes, I did. And I, and I had to stop myself from saying that you didn't want to have anything to do. But I'm a lawyer now. If you ever need any service, give me a call. See, God, but the whole time, I just kept my cool. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that makes a difference. While she openly admits the difficulties she faced as one of the first to integrate her school system, Mrs. Rogers shared with the students how she coped with frustration and anger through her religion. Perhaps the most important thing she shared, though, transcends circumstance and drives at the heart of what makes a community whole, a generous heart. How do you think being the oldest of three and growing up in the time that you did sculpted you into the woman that you are today and just to help the way that you're helping the community today? When I was little, we lived with my, I lived with my grandmother. My mother taught school, but her first job was out of the, out of the city. So she would, leave, she would leave either late Sunday night or early Monday morning on the Trailways bus and go mm -hmm. to her job, and she would come home to the evening. But I remember my grandmother, who she was a widow, but she was always taught, teaching me to give. I can remember her on Sunday evenings, we would go around and visit all the older people in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. the sick people, and, and she would take food, she would, she would take her sheets that, we, that I had ironed <laughs> for my bed, but she would do good things, and she was always giving, and I think she passed it down to my mom, my sister, my brother, and all of us, and my daddy was a big giver. I mean, he although he, he owned a funeral home, but he he was he was always invited to a church program or mm -hmm. something, and he never went without taking at least twenty dollars to put into the to the offer. So I came from a family of givers, and I think I hope I have set a good example for my brother and my sister mm -hmm. along the way, and I try to give back. And um, being that I, I that's what stirred me to come down here. I wanted to see what was going on, and I wanted to share my story because a lot of times I'm not one to be the big drum major, 
But I do think it's important that we give back. None of us will be successful if all of us fail. Mrs. Rogers' statement about the importance of engaging in communities summarizes the point of our project. This was our attempt to engage with the Eastlake community because Sanford was part of that community for 70 years. And just as during our years on the Marion campus, when community members helped in times of need, the Eastlake community fed into the college as well. Ruhama Baptist Church in Eastlake hosted many a Howard College graduation ceremony, and residents near campus often offered room and board to students. It is only fitting for us to engage with and learn about Eastlake's history because it helped shape who we are as a university. As we mentioned earlier, Sanford alum Amber Tolbert's enthusiasm for this project was a large part of what made the event successful, and her love for her community is a model to look to. As usual, the podcast will take a short hiatus over January before returning in February. Until then, make waves! Our theme was written and produced by Sanford student Carrie Joyner. The background music was also produced by Carrie Joyner. The interviews with Earl Two, Nancy Scarpula, and Eunice Rogers were conducted by Cornerstone students. This project could not have been done without the work of Amber Tolbert at East 59 Vintage and Cafe. We also thank Emily Woodhouse, who worked with Cornerstone Schools and transcribed these interviews for us. This episode was written and produced by Michelle Little and Claire Davis. This is a Sanford Traditions and Oral History Recordings Initiative production. For more information on our program, you can find our page on the Sanford website or follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at Sanford underscore story and on Twitter at SU underscore story.